As we continue in our Gospel Above All series, the question before us for the next couple of weeks is simply this. How do we live out the Gospel in our marriage? How do we live out the Gospel in our marriage? When I do um, premarital counseling, um, I give assignments to couples, usually they're young couples, uh, in preparation for their wedding day. And one of the assignments that I give them is to find a couple that has been married 50 years um, and then sit down with them, invite them to lunch or ask if you can go to their home and ask them one question and then sit and listen for an hour. And so I've, uh, when, when folks didn't know who to go to, I've recommended over the years a number of people in the life of our church. Uh, Jim and Mary Roberts, um, uh, Noxie and Louise Taylor, uh, Frank and Barbara Miles, Jim and Judy Douthat, just a myriad of people in our church. If you're not sure who to call, here are some folks that have been married at least 50 years. And you sit down in front of them and you simply ask them one question. How do you do it over the long haul? And then close your mouth and listen. And you know, I've done that for, for years. For a long time, I've encouraged young couples to think about their marriage long term. Not just you know, for a few years, but over the haul of their life. And I've encouraged them to think about it. I've I've done that for several years now, but last year, uh, I've never done it myself. Until the Lord gave me the most incredible gift in all the world. You guys know that last year I lost my mom and uh, on one occasion, just a few days before she had passed, I'd been there that week when the doctor said, you know, you need to bring in hospice and um, let them supervise her care. And so um, I had gone home and helped my dad with uh, some of that process and, and left on Saturday afternoon. Mom was doing fairly well and said, Mom, I'm, I'm going to go home and preach, but I'll be back. Um, and I was going to come back and preach and take care of a few things in the middle of the next week, go back to Kentucky. And so I got home that Saturday night about 9, and uh, the next morning I was doing my normal Sunday morning routine. I get up, I get coffee, and I start going over my notes for my message. So it was about 5 or 5.30 when my sister called me and said, you know, um, she's not doing well, you need to come home. And uh, that's a pretty short notice to give a staff member to say, hey, you know, go preach. Uh, So I preached that morning at 9 and 11 and then drove home and uh, got home probably 8 o'clock that Sunday night. And uh, so we all just kind of gathered and like families do, you know, and uh, went to bed that night, maybe 12, And then I woke up the next morning like 3 a.m. And of course, you know, my mind immediately started running, how's how's mom? So I just got up, and I thought, I'm, I'm just going to go on and go into the kitchen and make some coffee. 
and, and then just go sit with mom. And so I went into the kitchen. I noticed that the coffee was already made. So, you know, if you're a coffee drinker, the first thing you do uh, is you smell it to see, has it been on all night? <laughs> you know, did somebody forget to turn the coffee pot off? But the coffee was fresh, so I poured myself a cup of coffee. And when I went into the room, there sat my dad, you know, with a cup of coffee in his hand holding mom's hand, just sitting there with her. And so I went in, closed the door, and asked dad, is it, is it okay I join you? Oh, yeah, yeah, come on in. So I, I go in, and I sit down, and we're just kind of sitting there. And I just started asking dad a series of questions. I already knew most of the answers. You know, dad, remind me, how, how did you guys meet again? And, um, you know, just how long did you date and... Um, you know, how quickly did you get married? And, you know, my, my parents, they, they met at church. Uh, always a great place to meet a potential spouse, right? Uh, they, they, they met at church. They actually met the night my dad was baptized when he came to faith in Christ as a 20-year-old young man. And so they met at church. Um, they just dated a few weeks before they got engaged. A couple months later, they got married. They got married in 1955. And they had children in 56, 57, 58, 59, and they hit perfection at 60. Um, so they stopped. Um, so, but I, I just went through this series of, of just asking questions for my dad. And you know, God gave me the most incredible gift. The Lord reminded me how you do marriage over the long haul. The Lord used my own family to teach me how you live out the gospel in the most intimate of all relationships that you have. The relationship between a husband and a wife. You know, my dad was sitting there holding her hand. And ultimately he told me, he said, Son, I woke up early this morning because I did not want your mom to go through this alone. We've been together for 64 years. And I did not want her to be alone now. And the Lord just used our conversation to give evidence of how you live out the gospel day in and day out over the long haul of a marital relationship. So let me walk through a few things. I, uh, I put this together this week and then realized it's really too much to cover in one Sunday. So we're going to have to spread it out if it's all right with you for a few weeks so that we can just let it settle on our hearts. So let me share a few things with you this morning about how to live out the gospel in your marriage. Number one, if the gospel does anything to us, the gospel brings clarity to marriage. 
The gospel brings clarity to marriage. At the heart of the gospel is Jesus coming to rescue broken, sinful, messed up people. When two people get married, they're infatuated with each other. And as a result, they're temporarily blind. In our marriage conference this weekend, the couples that were seated at my table, one of the things that that we did is that we just had some conversation about how we all met. And we just finished a session talking about celebrating differences because we are all created in the image of God and how it is not our responsibility to change our spouse house. Um, and, and so we were talking about that, about how we all met it. It's interesting, every couple, uh, including Julie and myself, you know, when we all first got married, we were so infatuated with each other that even in our dating relationship, we knew there were differences, but they were irrelevant. It's interesting that differences only become relevant after couples say, I do. Right, for example, we never notice prior to marriage that there may be an occasion, right, when my future husband, who now treats me like the queen of the world, might actually turn in on occasion to an ogre named Shrek. Right, it never occurs to a groom right, that his future bride, his beautiful Cinderella, might one day wake up and realize he's married to the wicked stepmother. It was either 17 or 18 years ago, but it is still fresh on my mind. I'd received a call early on a Monday morning. Uh, Pastor, my wife and I need to see you immediately. And so we met that morning. They walked into my office. And every office I've had for several years, I always have a, I like to have a couch in my office because one of the things that I like to do is I like to watch uh, what couples do when they come in. Um, in this particular case, When they walked in the room, it was obvious to me that the tension was so thick in the room that you could cut it with a knife. They walked in. They sat down on opposite ends of the couch. They could not even bear to look at each other. And they certainly could not even say a civil word to one another. Almost every word that flowed from their lips was accusation. And when the words came out, they came out with extreme anger. I'm certain there was a time when they adored each other. I'm certain there was a time when they loved each other. I'm certain that when they went into their marriage, when they stood before God and their family and all of their friends and said, I do, in their minds, it was filled with excitement and hope about what was going to come in their lives together. I'm certain they never saw a day when they would come and sit before their pastor and the only thoughts and feelings they would have would be anger, resentment, and regret. 
What do we tend to do in our marriages? We tend to deny our sin and point out the sin of the other, don't we? We tend to deny our part while we point out all the problems are hers or his. And every single time we deny our sin, we devalue the gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel-centered marriage gives us a daily reminder of our own brokenness. Right? We're all very familiar with Romans 3.23, For we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And by the way, that does not just mean your spouse. That means you. So the truth of the matter is, it doesn't really matter in a disagreement between a husband and a wife who's right and who's wrong because in deep down inside, you're both wrong. We're all wrong. And this is important because deep down inside, all of us want to be justifiers. We can easily stand before our spouse. I can easily stand before Julie and point out, you know, uh, sweetheart, uh, that little speck in your eye, I, I believe it's getting bigger, and totally ignore the two-by-four sticking out of our own eye. No matter what our spouse's sin is, it never negates our own brokenness. It's always a good thing to remember that we are on equal ground when it comes to failure before God. And what does the gospel do? The gospel reminds us that we are two imperfect people. And what do we do when we come together in a marriage? We bring our imperfection with us. And that imperfection comes out, doesn't it? The gospel ought to change the way we look at our spouse. Just like it ought to change the way we look at us. I have this book in my office that is entitled, When Sinners Say I Do. And it is a good reminder that the gospel reminds all of us that we are our own biggest problem. What was it that the Apostle Paul said? Right There is a passage in Philippians uh, that we all just dearly love. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now you would think that the person who wrote that would be somebody that had solved the sin problems in his own life. But the fact is, 
The guy who wrote that, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, also wrote, Oh, wretched man that I am. By the way, ladies, you have my permission anytime you like, look over at your husband and just say, You're a wretch. Here is Paul admitting his brokenness. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The same one who said, I can do all things, also said, here is a trustworthy statement. Here is a statement that is worthy of full acceptance. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And by the way, I am the chief. I'm foremost. I'm at the top of the list. I'm the chief of sinners. A God-glorifying, gospel-centered, life-enduring union springs from the conviction that we are all sinners like Paul. The gospel brings Clarity to marriage. Here is a truth we would all do well to remember. As far as I can see, the greatest sinner I know is me. Y'all say that with me. As far as I can see, the greatest sinner I know is me. We would all do well to remember this. The gospel brings clarity to marriage. Secondly, the gospel brings forgiveness to marriage. Someone once said forgiveness is a wonderful idea until you're the one that has to do it. Right? How do you forgive someone who breaks a promise? How do you forgive someone who doesn't even ask to be forgiven. Why should you be the one to forgive when you're the one who was wronged? I I read about uh, a lady that was summoned for jury duty and uh, she said this to the judge. She said, your honor, I, I can't serve because I don't believe in capital punishment. And the judge said, ma'am, this isn't a capital charge. What we're looking at is the case of a man who emptied out his wife's savings account of $14,000 and uh, took a three-day trip with his girlfriend to Las Vegas. And the lady said, okay, I'll serve and I believe I'm wrong about capital punishment. (laughs) Forgiveness is the pardoning of an offense. Forgiveness is the restoring of a relationship after sin and alienation enter. To forgive is to give freely. To forgive is to grant, to cancel, to pardon. You know that this is true. Forgiveness is so important that it was never far from the focus of Jesus' ministry. Forgiveness is so important that it was never far from what Jesus 
taught. You look at his sermons, you look at his parables, you look at his prayers. They are filled with lessons about forgiveness. Or you study the life of Christ and you will find things like nothing in the Christian life is more important than forgiveness. Nothing in the Christian life is more important than forgiveness. You will be reminded, right, that Christians must be limitless in their forgiving others. Because God has been infinitely forgiving with them. Learning to forgive forget and forge ahead is one of the secrets of a happy Christian life. And I, I, I think even just looking at that, I would probably change that a little bit. I would probably say learning to forgive, forget, and forge ahead is one of the secrets of a holy Christian life. Jesus reminds us that God deals with us as we deal with others. God deals with us as we deal with others. Do you remember when Peter asked Jesus how many times he should forgive someone who had sinned against him? And do you remember the number that Jesus gives? Anybody remember? Seventy times what? Seven. Seventy times seven. And then what does Jesus do? He follows it with a parable about forgiveness. You can read that later in Matthew chapter 18. Right? So children will hear that story and children will say 490 times? I mean, that's crazy amount of forgiveness. But that's the point, isn't it? The point is, we are to never stop forgiving. In fact, Jesus makes it clear that unless we forgive others, our Father in heaven will not forgive us. We might be thinking, well, Pastor, you don't know what my spouse has done. What if my spouse does something that is unforgivable? I don't think Jesus ever said forgiving would be easy, did he? But he did say we need to forgive over and over and over and over and over again. Jesus never said forgive only when the other person deserves it. Jesus never said, forgive if they ask for forgiveness. No, Jesus said something much more profound. He said, if you do not forgive others their sins, neither will your Father forgive your sins. Do you get this? This is serious stuff, isn't it? This is serious business. This means you can never again say to your spouse, do you remember that time when you said 
you and I should always respond to our spouse with the same grace that we have been given. Right? We should always respond to our husband and to our wife with the same grace that we have been given by God. You have heard me say this over and over and over again. You and I are never more like Jesus than we are when we forgive. Here is some good truth for us to hold on to today. God has forgiven you more times than you will ever have the opportunity to forgive someone else, right? God has forgiven you more times than you will ever have the opportunity to forgive someone else, right? God has forgiven you more times than you will ever have the opportunity to forgive somebody else, right? Thank you. Yes, dear ones. Yes. This is why we should be limitless in our forgiveness. Because God is limitless in His forgiveness to us. Some of you will remember back in 2005 when the G8 summit was held, right? These are the world leaders from Canada and the United States and France and Germany, Italy, Japan, Russia, and the United Kingdom. Back when the G8 summit met in 2005, one of the things that our world leaders agreed to do was to write off the debt of the 18 poorest countries in the world. They literally forgave the largest debt cancellation in the world. They forgave the largest debt cancellation in history. Forty billion dollars. Forty billion dollars. I mean, that's, that's a lot of zeros. Forty billion dollars. Maybe the question that we might address is, is that really the largest debt cancellation in the history of the world? Look what we have sitting before us today. Is it not true that canceling an enormous debt makes an enormous statement? What is the statement before us today? Is it 2 Corinthians 5.21? For God made him who knew no sin 
to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God? Is there not an enormous statement there? God made someone who knew no sin to bear every sinful thought, word, and deed of your life and mine. Everyone. So that we could become righteous. So that we could stand right before God. Paul put it this way to the church in Ephesus. After telling us in verses 1, 2, and 3 that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. After reminding us that we were basically children of wrath. (laughs) Deserving of the wrath of God because of our enormous sin and guilt. Paul says, but God... By the way, church, that is the greatest conjunctive in all the Bible. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins, He made us alive together in Christ. So it's by grace that we have been saved through faith. So, not only is it by grace that we have been saved through faith, not only has He made us alive together with Christ, but He has raised us up. You are blood-bought children of God. What would happen to the world if in our marriages we were all raised up with the enormous awareness that Jesus Christ has died and risen again so that in our relationships we could just exalt the magnificent love of Jesus? If you were like me... um, Oh, what was the morning that the storms came through and the sirens went off and we got all the text alerts? It was this week, right? It was uh, Thursday, Thursday, right? So if you're like me, you're up at 3 o'clock drinking coffee because your phone's beeping and the siren's going off and, you know, animals are barking outside and you can't sleep. So you just get up and you, you, you do what you always do, right? You drink coffee and you watch James Fan, right? Or you watch the, you know, the, the, the weather. And so... Um, uh, Julie and I used it as an occasion to listen to some preaching. You know, my, my wife likes for us, I can say this because she's under the weather today and so she is home. She likes to listen to preaching during the week so she can feel like she's gotten some good preaching that week. And uh, so, uh, you know, we're, we're listening to preaching that is basically reminding us that we ought to be thinking about who we are in Christ and where we're headed as Christians. And maybe if we did that, maybe if we practiced Colossians 3, right? Maybe if we set our minds on things above and not on things of the earth, we wouldn't get so twisted every time something happens in Washington, D.C., Maybe if we remembered that this is not our home permanently. We're scattered aliens. 
We're strangers. We're sojourners headed for an eternal home, right? We've been raised up with Christ. Notice the text says, and seated him. Well, actually, I'll show it to you. Uh, the text says, we've been raised up with him uh, and, seated, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you get that? That means from God's perspective, you and I are already there. Isn't that beautiful? He's already seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. Why? So that for eternity He would show the immeasurable riches of the grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul put it this way, just one more text and we're going to go to the Lord's table. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us. What is that word? Some of our trespasses? All? <laughs> All our trespasses? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, you deserve. Do you understand that when Jesus died on Calvary, he died in your stead. Right? He bore the punishment you and I deserved to bear. And He bore it. And He set it aside. Nailing it to the cross. When you receive the elements of the Lord's table, you ought to be absolutely blown away. Why? Because it is a reminder that Jesus set all your sinful wickedness and vile depravity and sin. He set it aside. <laughs> he nailed it to the tree. And it is gone. And that is why forgiveness ought to be the norm.